welcome and thanks for joining us for another episode of the Minor Tweak Major Impact Podcast. This is the third episode of our Plant Science series. I'm your host Anita and in today's episode we're talking to Dr. Elena Ilario. Elena Ilario was born in Mexico City where she studied biology at the National Autonomous University of Mexico and later she did a master's in biochemistry at the same university. Five years later, the University of Connecticut awarded her a PhD in molecular and cell biology under the guidance of Dr. Peter Gogarden, where she studied how the vacuolar ATPase of the protist Giardia lamblia is a good model for the study of the evolution of early eukaryotes. A postdoc on the effect of horizontal gene transfer on the evolution of Pseudomonas species brought her to New Zealand in 1998, working at Landcare Research, followed by a permanent position as a scientist at Plant and Food Research, working on physical mapping and genome sequencing of several plants and lately fish and insects. In this episode, we're talking with Elena about her research, challenges in method development and method execution, and her experience of training others. So let's jump right in. Elena, I would like to welcome you to the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Thank you for inviting me. To get started, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you're currently working on? Uh, yes. I am a Mexican scientist. I was born in Mexico City, where I got my bachelor's in biology and later a master's in biochemistry. Then I went to the U.S., to University of Connecticut, to get a PhD on early evolution of eukaryotes. And right after that, I moved to New Zealand for a postdoc because as part of my PhD thesis, I was very interested in horizontal gene transfer. And here in New Zealand, I started working on pseudomonas and the impact of this phenomenon in the evolution of these species. After my postdoc, I was very lucky to get a permanent position at what is now called Plant and Food Research, which is a crown research institute in New Zealand that works mainly on fruits and some other crops and lately also seafood and consumer traits. I've been here since 1998. Great. And how did you first get interested in plant science and what are some plants that you have worked with in the past or what are some plants you're working with right now? Well, actually, my very, very first interest when I was still a student was microbiology, believe it or not. But more than just microbes is the mechanisms on how they exchange genetic information. And that's why I was interested in doing a PhD on horizontal gene transfer and the evolution of early eukaryotes with Dr. Gogarten. And I never really got, I would say, married to a model system, which can happen in science. You know, people study Arabidopsis for years and years and years. And no, I was not into that. I was more into the mechanisms and how things work. So when I finished the postdoc on Pseudomonas and I was offered this job on basically working on plants, the job was mainly focused on physical mapping and genetic mapping. Originally on apple and later on kiwi fruit, and although I didn't know much about plants or plant science, the mechanisms of how plant genetic material is structured, how they interact with their environment and with pests and pathogens was what really interested me. So I moved into plant science very easily, mainly because of the interest on the mechanisms more than the organisms, I would say. Great. So you have worked with quite a number of different plants. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience working with different plants like apple and kiwi fruit? Then what are some challenges when you're working with these plants? Luckily, when I started working on the plant science area, 
I was focused on the physical mapping aspect of the research that is done in my institute. So I was in charge of developing methods for handling back libraries, first in Apple, later on KiwiFruit, and later in light brown Apple Moth which is the uh, best. So um, I really didn't have much contact with plants at the beginning. It was later on when the genome sequencing project for kiwifruit started in 2009. That is, I actually started dealing with real plant samples, you know, plant leaf samples or flowers or roots and, you know, all these things. And I got exposed to the difficulties of getting the most basic techniques sorted in every crop extracting DNA, extracting RNA of good quality for all these genome sequencing projects. So my experience was most people were doing DNA preps using kits, for example, and it can work for some genotypes very, very effectively. But once you move to a different genotype, those kits or those methods or protocols start failing consistently. And that was very frustrating for me because at the beginning I was relying on in all these kids mainly. So I had to go back to my original training, which was more on the biochemical side and go back to what is now called the old school methods, which is not all that old because I remember using those when I was a student. So I actually had to go back to the basic techniques and start from scratch on methodologies to prepare really high quality DNA or RNA for these genome sequencing projects. So it was quite challenging because not many people in my institute were involved in these kind of projects. I was basically left on my own. But I have to say that one thing that worked for me is that the boss that I was working for at that time had 100% confidence in me and he just gave me 100% freedom to try and do whatever was needed. And that was what actually motivated me to get, you know, really into detailed protocol designs to solve all these problems that I had. The trust that I had from my managers and from my direct, you know, line manager was amazing. And that really built up my confidence to try many <laughs> different things to solve the problems at hand. Great. And you already mentioned that you also have worked with the fish and insects. Are there any like very major differences that researchers can expect when they're working on plants versus animals? Are there any like main things that stand out? Yes. What I have noticed is that sometimes people forget to have fun with the things that they're dealing with, even though they're quite challenging and frustrating. If you don't have fun with the things that you're working on, you are missing most of the experience. So I deal with lots of frustrating experiments and people coming to my lab to solve their problems as well. We're carried away with these frustrations and people just forget to have fun with this and to imagine how these things are. What exactly am I handling in this little ependorf tube? What is inside? So what I've been doing recently is picture in my brain what is exactly what I'm handling. And the main difference that I see between a plant DNA extraction or an animal DNA extraction is if you think of demolition of a house, of a wooden house, you have this big giant crane, you know, just bulldozing your house. That's a plant DNA extraction. It's just a complete and absolute mess. It's a very rigid structure and you end up with tiny, tiny pieces of wood everywhere and furniture and everything gets destroyed. And you need to take out the couch in the living room intact. So that's your nucleus and you need to take that out to extract your DNA. So that's how I see a plant DNA extraction, for example. And an animal DNA extraction, I picture it in my brain as camping tent collapsing. 
You see, it's something soft, very little structure. And basically just wind can just crush this thing into flat pancake on the, on the ground. And all you have to do is just take out the sleeping bag or something, you know. So that's more or less how I picture things in my brain. So when I have those images, it's a lot easier to understand how I should handle different type of extractions. If it's a plant DNA, I need to remember there are tons of pieces of plant cell wall and carbohydrates and sticky stuff floating everywhere. And when I'm dealing with an animal and DNA extraction is a completely different story. So I know this is kind of silly, but if you start imagining what you're handling in your hands at the tiny, tiny molecular level, it makes you understand much better how things work and how can things be improved. Right. I really like this visualization of the house and the tent. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's awesome. And so my next question that I always ask on this podcast is, did you ever experience a minor tweak, major impact moment in your research? And I know you already mentioned that you did experience some of these moments when a method stopped working for different types because of the kids and you had to use old school methods. But was there ever anything that you experienced where just suddenly something just didn't work and there was like this minor tweak that was the reason? Yes. Yeah, I can think of two stories. One was a major mistake. Some of these kits that are designed for extracting DNA from plants, for example, can also be used for cleaning up enzymatic reactions that you have done with plant DNA, for example, like a, a restriction digest or a ligation or basically a DNA that is not very clean. You can use these kits to clean up those DNA preps. And basically all you have to do is bind the DNA again in the silica column using these magic buffers. In this case, I was using a kit that I suspect the buffer is just vanidine hydrochloride to help the DNA bind to the silica particles in the column. But the ratios that you have to use are very important because these buffers also have some ethanol, for example. And if you go over those ratios, you can precipitate DNA, which they don't tell you exactly. They only say mix it quickly and load the column. That's all at a 1.5 ratio, you know, buffer to sample. And I was so desperate with this poor DNA sample that was so dirty and horrible that I mistakenly added three times the recommended volume and I mixed it quickly. And very quickly, I saw the DNA coming out of solution. You know, I, I didn't even load the column. I said, I don't need to load the column. The DNA is already there. I spun down the tube, I carry on like nothing happened, washed the pellet, resuspended and did a QC by absorbance and the DNA was quickly clean. And I said, I didn't need the column, but I don't know what's in the buffer either. But I kept a note and since then, every time I have a similar situation, I always tell people, you know, maybe try this. I know it doesn't say in the protocol in the kit, but believe me, it works. And everybody comes back like, oh, yes, it does work. And yes, unfortunately, I cannot tell you exactly what's in the buffer. I know it works, but it's a pain. You know, we don't know the composition of these buffers, but I know that if you do this with this particular buffer, it will work. So yeah, that was one story. The other story was also in desperation. Recently, I've been learning how to prepare plant chromatin for preparing high C libraries, you know, these long range sequencing libraries. And again, the kits work for certain plants or certain animals, but not for others. And I work with non-model organisms. So the few plants that I started working with, with these kits behave more or less okay, according to the description in the protocol. But this last plant that I was dealing with is called Rewa Rewa. It's a tree. It's a native tree of New Zealand. 
related to macadamia and it has very, very tough leaves like leather, like a piece of cardboard. And it's just very frustrating because it's very hard to work with this plant. And I had to prepare a high C library. And when you finally have your cross-link DNA and dissolve the, the membrane and lyse the, the nuclei, you need to retrieve that cross-link chromatin and wash out all the debris. Well, the Rewa-Rewa sample will not bind at all. You have to bind it to magnetic particles, and it was not binding to the magnet at all. It kept sliding down, sliding down, and it was impossible to do the washes. And in desperation, I have no idea how it came, but I just put the magnet horizontally on the bench, and there it was. That was the solution. The chromatin bound to the beads stuck to the magnet, obviously, more efficiently because of gravity. And I was just very careful opening the tube and very carefully taking out the buffer with the tube as horizontal as possible. And that was easy. And that's how I learned how to deal with some plant chromatin samples that are just too difficult to clean up. Later on, I learned how to do this from scratch and I'm not limited to the volumes and buffers that come in kits. So I can do all these in larger volumes in a more civilized way. But it was thanks to this moment of desperation, a step that takes five minutes for any other sample. It was taking me an hour for this plant sample. And out of desperation, I found out that gravity is your friend. And we forget things like that. We forget to have fun. We forget that time and gravity and patience are your best allies in the lab. We tend to forget that. Right. Those are awesome stories. Thank you so much for sharing those. How many tries did it take you until you figured out that you had to put the tube horizontally on the bench? Five experiments. Okay. Yeah, so I took five tests with the Rewarewa to figure out how to handle this plant. And in the meantime, I processed other plants that were behaving more or less okay. I processed a fish sample that behaved like the kid said, but this particular plant gave so much trouble. But I said we because thankfully I was in contact with the technical support team from one of these companies that I produce the kids. And they have been fantastic in helping me out. If it wasn't for them, at least someone that I can talk to, because in my in my institute, nobody else that I am aware of is doing this in large scales like I'm doing it. So talking to the technical staff of some of these companies is just amazing. They are very, very helpful. So yes, I say we because they actually helped me a lot along the way. That's great. And then so my next question, I know that you are also oftentimes training others. And I was wondering if you had any suggestions or advice for training others, especially when it comes to understanding and following methods. Yes, you have your protocol developed and written and tested by you many, many times, and you are very confident that it works. And that's what you think. The first time you teach the protocol to somebody with either similar skills as you or less skillful as you is a completely different story. You realize that people have many different ways of doing things and you can have two attitudes toward this. You can have them, no, you have to do it this way. And if they say why, and if you're not prepared to give an answer, you look like a fool if you're not able to do, to give a proper answer. You can take that attitude or you can take the attitude of letting the other person do it the way they think is best and then asking, why did you do it this way? And that usually gives people the chance to explain themselves. And if they don't have an answer for that, then you can offer one. And I said, look, we're doing it this way because this and this and this. And I think the way you're doing it, you might run into problems because this and this and this. So you need to be flexible. You might think that you know your protocol, 
until you train somebody. They teach you a lot about what you think you are already the master of it. So you just need to be flexible. You need to listen to people and you need to be prepared to give an explanation of why you're doing things like this. And you need to be prepared to take the explanation that they give you of why they do it that way. And you end up learning a lot from the people you are training. So getting on your pedestal and thinking that you know best is the wrong attitude. You have crossed this bridge once, but people can cross the bridge in different ways or different times of the day, and they can see different things that you didn't see. So I actually have improved my protocols by training other people on how to do this. And I have done training with people coming to my lab. I have done training going to their labs I have done training on the telephone. I have done training by email. I have done training by every single possible way. People prefer not to be trained. They prefer to have the protocol and figure it out themselves. And then they come back to me and said, oh, I cannot understand this step. Or And that, that's also okay. So you need to be very flexible. And you will realize that you learn a lot more than what you think. That's awesome. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to... Think about how you're training somebody on a method that you usually use. And I do like your suggestion to be open and having a explanation prepared for why you're doing things and also being open to listen to their explanations. And so you mentioned also you have trained people through email and over the phone. That sounds very tricky, but I think right now, especially because of coronavirus, I think in these times, I think many more might be actually facing this, that they have to actually train others through the phone or like a Zoom meeting or maybe over email only. Do you have any tips or suggestion of how to make that as efficient as possible? I will have a chance in the next couple of weeks to train somebody on how to extract RNA from fish by Zoom. <laughs> One of the students that I already trained will be holding the phone or the laptop or something in the lab and they will be broadcasting live what this other girl is doing for me to see. So um, it's going to be quite interesting because the girl holding the camera or the laptop, I already trained her and she tried to train the student. I, I mean, she trained it well, but they still have questions. And because this other student, the first one, is not at the bench all the time, so she has limited skills as well. We all decided to have a Zoom meeting in the lab where I will be watching the second student do the whole extraction live. And then the other girl will be in my hands to help the other student fix any issues. So that's going to be interesting because I've never done it this way. The training that I did on the phone was, it was actually a lot of fun because this guy was working at the lab with his headphones and, and his telephone and I could hear, you know, walking around and doing things and like, it was just crazy, but it worked. Somehow it worked. So now with the technology and video cameras and everything, it will be a lot easier, I suspect. But yeah, we'll see in a couple of weeks. That will be fun. Yeah, that sounds fun and interesting. Yeah, I'm curious to hear how it goes. And then, so my last question always on this show is a fun question and any answers are allowed. But if you were allowed to make a wish for a tool that would make the life of researchers easier or maybe your life easier as a researcher or your work more efficient, what would that be? Well, I don't wish for any more tools, actually. I wish we would all know how to use the tools we have properly because we just have too many tools, you know, we have, I mean, not only equipment wise, but reagents, enzymes, systems to characterize 3D interactions in the genome or all these things. 
there is way more things out there than we actually realize. And we are still stuck with all technologies. We still PCR one gene, we still clone it, we still make a plasmid prep, and we still sequence this tiny little thing. And we wasted a month when all these can be done way more efficient because the tools are there. So if I had a wish, I wish for time for people to sit down and learn how to use the tools that we have properly, and life will be a lot easier and efficient. The most precious thing we have is time, so we have to use it efficiently and wisely. So that's what I would wish for. Great. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners today? Right now, the whole world is just too stressed out, and we might think that Things will never get back to normal. They will get back to a different system and reality, but everything will be fine at the end. And we just need to be patient and focus on what we can, which is our research. And I remember reading, I think it was in Protocols.io or it's in some other journal, that because a lot of people are at home and locked and can't go back to the labs. This is a perfect time to go back and revise methods and protocols and experiments that we have and try to put them in writing, share them, upload them to your site or any other site, you know, to make them available and start talking to people. This is a perfect time to share experiences and tips and ideas and have video calls about methodologies that we want to update or improve in our labs. So we can use this time, this stressful time to focus on what we can do for our own research and keep connected. Elena, thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing your story and insights on the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm very grateful. Thanks. This is your host, Anita, and we look forward to being with you for our next episode. This program was produced by H Media. We'll see you soon. <laughs>